You think too excited? You think we were too excited about the whole Sammy Hagar thing and Michael Anthony on Howard Stern? Ah, maybe. I don't know. Every time they're on there, it's interesting, you know, but they're never on there all the time. Yeah, I well, yeah, I know we did a whole show on it, but I, I thought it was worth it. I thought it was worth doing a show. I mean, now, you know. So, hey, everybody, it's Dave Kinchin, Rock of Nations with Dave Kinchin. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, uh, talking about, uh, our, I guess, our, our post-game uh, analysis of the show that we did, which we should always do post-game before we, on the last show, before we do the new show, right? Don't you think? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so uh, we were talking about uh, the whole thing about Howard Stern having Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony on uh, when they were promoting their new album, uh, Space Between by uh, The Circle, their, their group now. And, uh, you know, there's always it's always fun when Howard talks about Van Halen because that, you know, as a Van Halen fan, you get more information from any kind of thing that Howard does about that band than anybody else. Eddie never talks, and when he does a few times, you know, other than the Billboard interview, what, 2015, where he trashed Michael Anthony, uh, you know, he, he was on Howard Stern back in 2006. That's when it was kind of revealed that Wolfgang was the new bass player. So, I don't know. He, heck, he even had uh, Mick Jones on there from Foreigner talking about, in one section, Van Halen, when he produced 5150. So, uh, you know what, I, I th you can't be too careful. You know, Oh, there is one bit of information. I, I say you, you can't be too careful. You have to be ready whenever those guys are talking about anything, anybody in Van Halen's talking about anything, because you just never know, even though things never go anywhere. But Sammy uh, also said on Stern, apparently, that he would be open to the Van Halen brothers not only listening to the Circle album, but he would love for the Circle to open with Van Halen. So I guess, I mean, but Michael Anthony would be pretty busy, I would think, right? Because he would have to play with Van Halen. Otherwise, people would just, might as well just see the circle. But then the circle couldn't, I guess the circle couldn't cover Van Halen songs, right? I mean, that would be weird. They can do it now legally, but, um, but to do Van Halen songs, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? That would be kind of a strange thing. I'd... I'd rather Chickenfoot be out there. Then you get some original stuff, and then maybe Mike and Sam doing some, some Van Halen stuff, and then leading into Van Halen. I don't know. Anyway, it's Rock of Nations, everybody. Um, enough about the last show. Let's talk about the new show. This is the show that should have been the last show, uh, where we look at some of the great venues in rock music. Uh, we'll look at MSG. We'll look at uh, uh, Wembley, mostly the old Wembley Stadium, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Budokan also in our uh, part one of some great venues in rock and roll. Uh, but we got some music news. There's a, did you see this? There's a petition on change.org to name this whole, um, this black hole, <laughs> this whole black hole thing. Um, kind of redundant there. Uh, you hear about this? The, the first ever photographed black hole was uh, released in a, a picture. Um, the science community is going nuts. Even Dr. Brian May of Queen, of course, an astrophysicist, tweeted some great stuff about it. Uh, well, there's a petition on change.org. doesn't have a lot of followers so far or a lot of supporters yet, but it's a petition to name it after Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, you know, their 1994 song, Black Hole Sun, which was kind of a weird video, too, when you think about it. Um, there's a move or, or an interest to name it after Chris Cornell as a tribute. It's, it's something that a lot of rock stations are, have picked up. Uh, my hometown rock station, The Riff, 101.1 The Riff, baby! Um, I try to sound like Arthur P. I, I sound terrible there. Uh, but um, they, they put that out there. It's also on several other rock and roll websites. Kind of an interesting thing, so we'd see what happens. Oh, and ACDC is apparently doing something, and yet another clue 
the engineer, the longtime engineer for the band, says that they are, quote, doing something. Ultimate Classic Rock apparently reporting this, saying that uh, uh, there's something going on in the studio. This is after um, there was a picture of Brian Johnson uh, and Angus Young uh, outside of a studio. Phil Rudd involved as well. This was up in Vancouver, I believe. And there's word that Cliff Williams may be back in the fold. His last show was in Philadelphia. First time I saw ACDC was the last time I saw, was the last time Cliff Williams played with them, the bass player. So uh, could be something could be happening. I mean, Phil Rudd was sidelined with legal problems in Australia. Uh, Malcolm Young, of course, passed away. So he's been replaced by their nephew, Stevie Young. Um, but, you know, and, and we all know Axl Rose did something. We heard the other thing was we were hearing Axl was going to do something with them in the studio. But I, I, who knows? But it looks like something is happening with some principal members of the band. Um, so I guess Chris Slade is out the drummer because he was he came back, uh, you know, to do the last tour. Uh, well, OK, so we'll see what happens there. Anyway, it's interesting. So we're going to get into some of the great venues that some of those bands actually probably played. That is next. You know, you could name it after Tom Petty also, you know, the black hole. You couldn't because he had that song, uh, The Dark of the Sun from the Into the Great White Open album, 1991. You, you could. Well, I, yeah, the Chris Cornell thing probably makes more sense. Um, not that I think that'll go far, but that could go. That could make more sense because black hole is actually in the name of the song Black Hole Sun. So I don't know. Just a thought. I, well, anyway, uh, as we move on to um, what we were going to bring you last time before the Van Halen News did sideline us, we're looking at the great venues, great venues in rock and roll as we come to you from the always bustling Old City Philadelphia studios right on Market Street downtown. Thanks for being with us. Uh, follow me at uh, Dave Kinchin USA on Twitter. Um, so there's so many venues out there. There's so many great uh, venues for music, um, legendary ones, legendary, you know. So I figured we'll do a two-part show. This one, you know, whenever we do those top ten lists, you're going to have some things that are obvious, you know. This one's, it's not a top ten list, but you're going to have some things that are obvious on here, which I think is okay. I figure we do the three most obvious. We'll do Wembley, we'll do Madison Square Garden, and we'll do Budokan. Um, we'll start with uh, Madison Square Garden, the world-famous, uh, w- what do they call it, the most famous venue, uh, something like that, uh, most famous arena. Um, there's a couple things people say about it. Um, so this is a place where, adjust my notes here, there were actually uh, four three or four different uh, Madison Square Gardens. Uh, there are four different places that uh, had that name dating back to, gosh, almost like 100 years ago or so, I think. Um, but, of course, the garden where it is now in, in Manhattan, you know, that is the garden that so many legends have dreamed of playing and wanted to play. Um, uh, apparently, John Lennon's final show I read was there. Uh, he had made an appearance. George Harrison played there. Um, Ace Frehley of Kiss talked about one of his most proud um, or one of his proudest moments in music. Actually, the the pinnacle, I think he was saying, of his career was playing Four Nights at the Garden, which they did in 1977. That would have been the Love Gun tour. Um, I heard him say that. I think it was a Loudwire interview way back or something. Not way back, maybe a couple of years ago. But he, uh, he said somewhere, or it might have been Eddie Trunk. But I know for a fact he said um, one of his most... Uh, celebrated moments was playing the garden and he's a New York guy. He's a Bronx guy. So 
you know, playing the biggest venue, one of the biggest venues, if not the biggest in the world, right in your own backyard had to be pretty cool. Um, oh, and of course, there was Billy Joel Day. Now, this is a guy who who really had a, a big record there, um, record in terms of attendance. Um, his 100th show uh, on July 18 of uh, 2018, July 18th of 2018, apparently uh, the city uh, of New York became, uh, it celebrated Billy Joel Day. Uh, his first concert was there in December of 1978. So um, 100 shows that Billy Joel played there. Um, of course, Zeppelin uh, played there. The song remains the same. Uh, documentary was also uh, recorded there, or the the live show. So, you know that was one of the the most iconic live performances of any band, and certainly anything that Zeppelin <laughs> that tongue tied here. Anything that Led Zeppelin does uh, is iconic, or did um, is iconic, especially as time goes on, even more so. So um, you've got to look at that part of it. Uh, the song remains the same. You know, Zeppelin, uh, uh, which played there numerous times over the years, um, back in their heyday, of course. Um, the concert for New York, um, after 9-11 was held there, U2, Elton John, Sir Paul McCartney, um, so many other stars there. Um, you know, I can never forget when Bruce Springsteen uh, sang, you know, uh, Come on, come on, rise up, come on, rise up, you know, a lyric from one of his songs, um, which was just, it was, it was so emotional, it was so incredible. Um, and Springsteen, of course, had played there numerous times. Um, so I'm just going down the list. Uh, um, you know, what, the, the interesting thing about that venue, too, is that it's certainly right in the middle of everything. So, you know, you can always get a great bite to eat, you know, some dinner, some drinks. Um, I mean, it's known for everything. It's known for basketball. The Big East tournament is held there. Obviously, um, you know, professional sports uh, held there, too. So, yeah, the Garden is definitely definitely has to be on uh, that list. Oh, Springsteen. Springsteen played 50 shows there, too. Um, with the E Street Band, and I think some probably solo also, or you know, because he there was a time where he had uh, let the E Street Band go, which was a tough thing. I mean, that was by uh, was it like late '80s or so. Um, so Springsteen uh, has made it a home as well, one of his favorite venues to play in. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a worthy mention uh, as well. So let me just check some other notes. I was, I was writing so many notes down on this. Let's see if there's anything else we're missing on uh, that one. No, I think that's about it. I, I was sketching this stuff through, and then, of course, when we did the Van Halen thing, it was like, all right, let's regroup, regroup. All right. Um, so I also want to look at um, another, another one that um, – we were talking about really when we were doing the, the uh, list of great live albums, and is, that's of course Budokan. Now, um, it, it, there's two names to it: uh, Nippon or Nippon Budokan. I think is how you say the first part of it. I, I was looking up; uh, it's Japanese, and I was looking up some uh, pronouncers, and 
I th- I think I heard it as Nippon or well that's that sounds more French, doesn't it? Ni- Nippon. Nippon. I think it's like Nippon Budokan, something like that. Uh but then again, I'm sure I'm not saying Budokan the right way as uh our friends in Japan would. So we you know, we've got some listeners uh, developing in Japan actually as well. So uh friends, if you um know how the the proper way of saying it, let me know cuz we always say Budokan here and we just call it Budokan. Um, and that's how that's the American pronunciation. But of course, we want to defer to our friends uh, where the, the wonderful historic venue is. Um, and, and what's interesting, too, about that uh, to me is um, it's it, that, that was a place that launched uh, performances of classic songs that were more popular as live songs than than anything else. So. Uh, first of all, we know Aerosmith played there, uh, Zeppelin had played there a handful of times, Santana. Uh, the first official live recording there, and we talked about this on the, the two podcasts ago, was Deep Purple's Made in Japan. It was also uh, partially recorded in, and I'm going to try to say this right, Osaka. Uh, Osaka, Osaka. Again, you never hear these names, other than Budokan said over and over, you never really hear these names said in American media. And when you type type in a you know a listing online for the venue, uh, you never really hear them say the venue. You just unless it's just live at Budokan or something like that. Uh, Kiss did the seven. I actually have this this show on video. Kiss played there in 1977, which was the year Love Gun came out. But I think it was the Rock and Rollover tour. Uh, it, they played there several times, and that video is on the documentary. The Kiss put out this uh, this DVD project, Kissology, uh, which Tommy Thayer, by the way, the lead guitar player now, was heavily involved in a lot of that stuff. The DVDs and production. He did um, the Second Coming, which of Kiss, which was the uh, the reunion DVD uh, or video. It was VHS at the time, basically documenting. Uh, Ace and Peter's return to the band, the 96 preps and everything. They went to Gene's house to try on all of the, the outfits and, and everything uh, like that, you know, put the makeup on for the first time, the rehearsals, which were really rough at first. You know, Tommy was kind of the unsung hero for a long time, uh, teaching these guys their parts again. Ace and Peter, I mean, a guitar player, teaching Peter Chris, you know, how to play drums on some of those old songs again. You know, according to Paul Stanley's book, uh, which I will for, I, I never want to read. I've heard the audio book, but I never want to read because he signed it. I don't even want to touch it. It's, it's sitting there uh, on my desk of uh, great music uh, contributions. So, uh, yeah, I, I just love looking at it. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. That's how, that's how much of a kiss freak I am, I guess. Uh, so they did the 77 tour there, and um, it was uh, pretty much every old kiss show, like some other stuff in Detroit, um, you know, Cobo Hall, I have that video. They did like three DVDs and they, um, they, it was almost like the Alives for video, you know, so the Alive album, you know, like the, you had their performance on uh, the Halloween special. Um, anyway, it's, it's definitely worth getting. It wasn't, the, the packaging was not very high quality. I mean, the cool thing was it had the Kiss lettering on it and it had the faces of the band members in volume one. Volume two had Eric's face on there and Makeup the Fox. Um, it, that kind of covered the early 80s to, you know, the non-makeup years. The third one kind of covered more of the 90s, you know, um, late 80s to 90s era stuff. 
Um, but it's worth it. I, I got to figure out where the heck I even put those. But I, I, it's, it's really cool to have all that, uh, to have all that history, history there. Uh, now, we talked about Cheap Trick at Budokan, this album, uh, it, again, in the, in the list of the top 10, you know, so we don't want to get too much into kind of going back, but that live record really was, in the, in the words of Rick Nielsen, lead guitarist, that album really put them over the top. Um, Nielsen said that they had three number one songs from their first and second records in Japan, according to uh, uh, UCR. They had all, you know, in an interview there, um, he said that they, the folks in Japan went so nuts over that band that, you know, they were the ones that really put them over the top. And the Beatles apparently was, I believe, the first band that played there. Um, and there was some uh, concern or outrage at, about that at the time because this was a venue. Budokan was set up for the martial arts and, and I think they had sumo wrestling there, that kind of thing. But it was really set up for a martial arts facility very historic in that right and so the idea of turning it into a concert venue when the Beatles played there was was something that upset a lot of folks back at the time uh, but yet uh, Rick Nielsen says uh, three number one songs from their first and second records there uh, the Japan Times back in 2008 did a separate interview with Rick Nielsen uh, and uh, he said that playing there was like playing on the moon uh, essentially that it was that exotic. I mean, you had these guys were a Midwestern band from Aurora, Illinois. It was kind of cool. Illinois. Did I say Illinois? Illinois. My gosh. I lived in Naperville, which was next door as a kid. Uh, and we had friends, uh, family friends who lived in Aurora, a really nice suburban town, um, city. And, uh, you know, I always knew that to be the place that Cheap Trick was from. So the fact that they had played, uh, you know, such a historic show at Budokan and and really that became one of their best-selling records and one of the best-selling live records of the 70s um so yeah we we've so you got them uh what else uh so yeah you can't doubt that I mean other bands had played there of course and documented their shows in fact Apparently, that was what turned, it was the Budokan, it was Live at Budokan by Cheap Trick that turned Budokan into that venue where every band had to go and record something live. Way down the road, um, uh, Skid Row recorded there. Skid Row recorded there. Uh, a bunch of other groups uh, as well. I've got to move this. Uh, I seem to bump this. I talk with my hands, and I seem to really bump this uh, dresser all the time. I, I need to move this thing <laughs> before my arm takes it out. Uh, some sound effects on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so that's Budokan. Um, also, Wembley. want to get into Wembley. Uh, there is the new Wembley built on the site of the old Wembley uh, back in 2007. What do we have here? Uh... George Michael apparently played the first show at the new venue. Um, bon Jovi played the last show at the old Wembley. So when they knocked down Wembley, I think it was like, uh, I remember this around the early 2000s. When they took down those twin towers, which were not like super tall, but those twin towers, uh, the two white sort of towers that, that, that were almost like the watchtowers for the venue, there were a lot of people really upset about that. And it was really sad because I remember my favorite show that was Genesis the, on the Invisible Touch Tour. You know, that was one of those DVDs I would get 
along with Van Halen's Live right here, right now in Fresno and, you know, all these others, you know, that was one of my favorite DVDs to get. Well, it was, I should say, video. It was video at the time. Uh, but, yeah, with the old Wembley was such an iconic place, you know, uh, Dire Straits, of course, uh, Phil Collins. I mean, first of all, Live Aid, you know, Live Aid was there, so you can't top that in terms of how historic and world-class it was uh, with U2, with, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday party was there, the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, which we talked about on one of the earlier shows. That was also there. Uh, and we know that... Uh, oh, and, and this was interesting, too. Michael Jackson had... One of his world records took place at Wembley. Uh, he played Wembley uh, 15 times. I think he was the, the, the one artist who played the old Wembley more than anybody else uh, starting in, in 88. But he also... Uh, sold out uh he, he he hit a record for selling out seven shows straight he played the first five consecutively and then uh the second two at, at a little bit later time but it, it's i mean he made millions uh in terms of selling it out uh there was actually a a, a twitter moments uh thing a few years ago a couple of years ago in 2017 that came out celebrating the anniversary uh of that of that moment but uh i always thought that was really cool and apparently uh princess diana and um prince charles had attended most of those shows back in the day too uh tina turner also played there, sold out numerous shows i love me some tina guns and roses um you know it's it's interesting too because it, it was just different types of music, different types of rock as well, you know, some blues in there too. So Wembley really was a world-class facility. Uh, Genesis did four shows on the Invisible Touch tour. Also, uh, NXS had played there at a time. So I, I wish they did more or could have, could have done more to preserve those venues. Every now and then they take down venues. For me in Michigan, it was... Uh, it was Tiger Stadium. I mean, I loved it for the Tigers in the 84 World Series, Victor Pennant, but also, you know, it was where Kiss kicked off their reunion tour. But, you know, despite so many efforts to save the stadium once the Tigers moved, they just, you know, there was nothing they could really do to preserve the old Michigan and Trumbull uh, site. So, you know, I think after 30 or 40 years, it just seems like these places have, you know, they, they just, they can't be maintained. The vet in Philly was another one um, that they got rid of. Uh, I think they built the link after that. Um, Metallica played a famous show there at the vet. I think the last show at the vet, somebody told me. So I hate to see legendary venues like that go, but, you know, at least we, we can have some way of remembering them and the great shows that are played there. We'll talk about the tower next. Uh, we'll do the tower next time um, in Philadelphia, you know, Bowie Live and everything there. Um, I got to tell you, I went to that venue once for a show, and it was the coolest experience just being in there, being in a historic place like that. There's some uh, some places around here, too, like the Keswick. Um, you know, I, I had seen shows at, uh, they had some big ones at the Palace of Auburn Hills in Michigan. Um, also, I uh, saw a really good show at, um, 
of course, you know, Cobo Hall saw Sabbath there in, in Kiss's final show. These aren't worldwide venues, although Cobo may be more so. These aren't, and, and the Tower, but other than that, we're not, you know, these aren't the large, like, world class stadium sizes, but there's many great intimate venues too and and uh there was a guy i'm thinking of too who had a book talking about some great venues in detroit like the old michigan palace and the 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 olympia um where a lot of bands had played there i think cream and stuff like that i gotta find that book it was um i'm just going off the top of my head here but there you know there are some really cool small venues historic venues some that are not around anymore some that still are like the tower but they're struggling a little bit from what we hear um but anyway um yeah, some great venues there. Now, we're going to do part two of the show, uh, not in our next show, but the show after the next, because I want to mix in another theme, too, uh, where we're looking at um, sort of the redheaded stepchildren of rock albums, you know, albums that are not very popular or weren't very popular amongst the fan base, but kind of have their own legacy, get a little bit better with time, or maybe not so much at all. Some of them happen to be albums I really like, some not so much. So we'll get into that as well. This is Rock of Nations with Dave Kinchin. Keep on rocking, my friends. Until next time, Sunday night.